Coming up, the cruelest podcast. <laughs> Get it? No. It's not April, Nathan. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let me try again. I will show you fear in Andrew Lloyd Webber's Cats. That, that, that's better. <laughs> that's better. <laughs> Hey everybody, welcome to the 200th Cats anniversary of the Bookening. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> this is the 200th time we've watched the movie Cats. <laughs> now we're going to have fun today. This is our, let me just explain to the folks. Actually, let me introduce our panel and then I'll explain to the folks. Meet our panel. Can you imagine up, if, yo? if you had made us watch this 200 times in a row? <laughs> what state of mind would we be in right now? Um... Divorced. Yes. <laughs> yes. In a homeless. Homeless in a custody battle. <laughs> Living in a van down by the river. There you go. What a horrible, horrible life. Wow. 200 times in a row. That would be a lot of times. But at least you'd get to see those horrifying cockroach children. Yeah. I would say, the, Nathan. The, the mouse children were more children than the cockroaches. Yeah, that's that's true. I, I was expecting the cockroaches to be more like children. The cockroaches were more adult. No, the mouse had the mi- the mice had their little. And none of the mice actually got eaten that I saw. No, it was yeah. just the roaches. But that whole scene. <laughs> that whole scene was a horrible scene. Oh man! What the heck? Oh man! Okay, let's. Why did the cat eat the roaches? Cats eat roaches because it was yeah. funny. Because Rebel Wilson does things and they're funny. Someone labors under this delusion. I'm not sure who. A producer. I don't know. a funny name. Rebel Wilson? I I suppose. (laughs) (laughs) It kind of sounds more like a country star. It does. We need to explain. Rebel Wilson with her third platinum. Sounds like a country band. Rebel Wilson. Yeah. Yeah. I would see Rebel Wilson. I would too. I bet there's like one of those like... Little southern bluegrass Confederate yeah. tribute band. Yeah, it's yeah. fun to watch Covers them. Dixie over and over yep. again. <laughs> on a grass hill in, in Texas evening. Eating some chicken. With a light breeze, yeah. sunset. Or not chicken, uh, barbecue. Cold beer in your hand. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of band it would be. I would sit on a blanket and be mildly annoyed at Rebel Wilson. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and be like, why can't we be inside somewhere instead of at this dumb music festival where we're seeing a B level band i would be having fun and that's why we're all friends <laughs> <laughs> i i think i'd be having fun t- well it depends on depends on the music well and it also depends on other fa- how pleasant the evening is but to be out yeah the evening for, like, i can tolerate any level of trashy terrible live music to be out on a pleasant evening on a blanket listening to live music and, and i can barely tolerate any live music in fact i almost want to say i just don't like live music that much it's really? loud it's mixed poorly. It's like all you well, can hear is the bass and the drum. To? I've been to some concert in my time, man. I grew up going to live music. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, most of my concerts are like 
new song and crap yeah. like that christian crap i went to a christian <laughs> yeah i went to a bunch of christian musical festivals musical like festivals <laughs> musical. Yeah, we, we're, we're doing godspell <laughs> jesus christ superstar <laughs> six flags over texas would have the baptist youth days mm-hmm. and every oh, so boy, they would oh, always boy. have audio adrenaline open it up yeah good and then the and next I've seen day audio adrenaline several times in yeah then the next day would be dc talk and they would always have their closing show be the newsboys it's big time right there buddy oh, yep. yeah we, we would always make the newsboys shows so I've seen them like four times. I've Fun seen fact. Audio A. I was too late to becoming a Christian to see DC Talk, but I have seen Toby Mac at least twice. Yeah. And I've seen Michael Tate. It sounds like you became a Christian at exactly the wrong time. Michael Tate was opening yeah. for Cademan's Call. One, then I've seen Cademan's Call Ooh, a couple ouch. of times. Um, <sighs> I have never, seen, call, I've never seen DC Talk live. I have been, yeah. Have I ever told you guys that I had a chance? By the way, folks, this is the episode, okay? This is our 200th anniversary. <laughs> and this is how we're doing it. It's, yeah. just, it's just this. It's just us relaxed, <laughs> yeah. talking. We're having fun. I've We've been, been there's, been there's going to be, foot. I've seen Switchfoot a couple 200 times. 200 cool. episodes, guys. There, there, there's going to be a, there's going to be some genuine uh, literary context somewhere in here, though. Somewhere. It's courtesy of Brandon, but it's gonna, there's also going to be a lot of this. What's the yeah. coolest concert you've ever been to? BB uh, King. Oh, that's hard. Uh, probably Fleet Foxes. Was pretty oh, cool. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I saw Dylan live on the lawn. Well, Dylan. No. Isn't Dylan supposed to suck though? I mean, I guess it's nice to be no, able to say you saw Dylan. I've seen Dylan I've seen Dylan three times. But probably the lawn the lawn in Indy was the best one. It was outdoor. Yeah. Stevie Ray Bra- Vaughn's brother opened. What's his name? Whatever. Jimmy Ray Vaughn. Jimmy Ray Vaughn. Like that. Charlie Ray Vaughn. Um Miley that, Ray. that was good. Billy Ray. As a kid, I saw a handful of country concerts and like boys to men. So I guess I saw Garth Brooks on his in pieces tour. Nice. I will show you fear in a handful of <laughs> Garth, Garth Brooks concerts. <laughs> hey, you want to know one of the coolest concerts I've ever been to was probably Robert Randolph and the family band. That's pretty. Yeah. That was awesome. That sounds cool. Yeah. You get a jam band in a tight space where everybody, that was a lot of fun. Yeah, I don't think I've ever admitted this to myself or anybody, but I don't like live music. I fired, I was playing Russian roulette with a cap gun when I was a a teenager, and I fired it into my ear, and that ear has never heard the same, if that's the sentence construction I want. No, I'm lying. (laughs) I made it up out of thin air. Brandon. Wow, Nathan, I've never seen so much hatred towards me. As you just showed in your face. <laughs> Get this, Jake. Brandon will believe this crazy story. <laughs> All right. It was more like, wow, Nathan, I hadn't heard that story before. Right. So that year has never quite felt the same. And, it, you know, it's not a big deal, but I've always been kind of paranoid. And then I worked in the calling industry with headphones in my ears for many, many years and beeping and loud noises and you're in a loud room environment with lots of people talking over each other and you're trying to hear in your headphones uh, working for a call center. And so I've just always been a little bit neurotic about my hearing. And so if I find myself at a bar with a musician that's playing too loud, I find, or just even ambiance that's too loud, I find it kind of unpleasant. And I don't really like to see loud music. That feeling, you know, like when you see a concert and then you can't hear for the next day while you're hearing adjusts back like to me that's really kind of scary and unpleasant and i don't like it and i don't take it for granted that it's that's going to come back so so i'm not trying to ruin anybody's jam if they they like live music but that's just i I like live music i like live music a lot i know people that 
that like to go see concerts and they wear uh, earplugs. Earplugs. Yeah, I've thought about doing they that. Go see live concerts with earplugs. Weird. Yeah. Huh. I think actually the last time I went to Ichthus, I brought earplugs. So well, there you go. <laughs> there you go. Could you hear anything? <laughs> no. <laughs> but then again, it was Christian music, so who wanted to? Well, that's true. <laughs> it was the perfect experience. Yeah. So Fleet Fox is the coolest thing I've seen. That's pretty cool. The the funnest one I've ever seen is probably here in Bloomington. They have this. They used to have this venue called the Dome House, mm-hmm. which is this place was just like out in this random property, and so, uh, the tallest man on earth played there. Oh, that's cool. It was, it was a and it's a very intimate venue, but they light the path, so you don't know where it is until like they light this path and they put like these lanterns along mm-hmm. it so you can find the house. It was fun. That's neat. I went there with my brother. I almost saw Mumford. Uh, the Bluebird before they were big, but they sounded stupid to me. Aw. And so I was so like, I'm go. not going to, yeah, I was, I was too cool to go see them or too dismissive of a band called Mumford and Sons. Yeah. Oh, fair What's enough. your dream concert? I mean, and so it has to be one that you could conceivably still go to. Bon Iver. I've seen bo- uh, some Bon Iver live shows on <laughs> TV. <laughs> what? I could have sworn you said pony bear. <laughs> pony bear. Pony bear? <laughs> pony bear. I was trying to figure out who in the world. <laughs> that's, that's you know pony bear. When he yeah. won his uh, when he won his award, his Grammy or whatever for uh, Holocene. Mm. Yeah. Trending on Twitter was bony bear. Bony bear. <laughs> yeah, that was the top. T- it was like, people were like, who is bony bear? Did you say, did you like bony bear or pony bear? Pony bear. Or? Pony bear? Oh, yeah. pony bear. You know, bone bear. Bony bear, I know. Yeah, bony bear would be great to see. I've watched two or three performances, like Austin City Limits and a couple mm-hmm. of other things, and I just think that would be the coolest concert. Yeah. I love everything Justin Vernon does. It's maybe a guilty pleasure. I don't know. One could argue. One could argue a guilty pleasure. But I, I just think everything that he does is super cool and fun. And I had no idea they could, what they could do. Uh, live mm-hmm. until I'd watched, I think, an Austin City Limits performance. And then I thought, man, that would be a concert I would go to. Like, I like seeing comedians or speakers or people that can actually just connect with an audience. A guy that can yeah. just, like, a folk singer that you don't even know the name of, but he can just sit on a stool and make you feel like he's having a conversation with you. Yeah. That kind of thing I admire yeah. and I enter into. And I kind of I like to watch it for tricks because we do podcasts yeah. and stuff where people are supposed to feel like they're talking to us. Like on that level, I really like it. So yeah, some lame band like that is probably that actually does that sort of thing. I don't know. Like, you know, Peter, Paul and Mary, if they're still alive, you know, somebody like that, that, yeah. that just tells stories. That was actually what was cool about BB yeah. King is he was so old that yeah. he hobbled out. He couldn't stand up. He sat down on a stool. Somebody, you know, a, a roadie came and handed him his guitar. And then he played like five songs and told boring stories in yeah. between. But it was fun because you just felt like you actually spent an evening with with B.B. King. And Yeah. One of the times I saw Dylan Elvis Costello was opening for him. And I don't like El- Elvis Costello or his music all that much. <clears throat> Elvis Costello was easily the most entertaining performer because of that very reason. He was just very fun and funny and engaging and had stories and just sort of kept you interested. Dylan's a really detached. Anybody doesn't know, probably everybody does because his reputation is so huge for this sort of thing. He's an incredibly detached performer. He doesn't say two words to the audience. It's just song, 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 song. 
and he's up there and then he's gone. Yep. He might, if he says two words, they might be thank you or one word, good night. Yeah, I mean, I guess Dylan's earned the right, but that sort of thing almost offends me a little bit. It's like, yeah. you've, I, we've spent our lives <clears throat> electing you to be like one of our gods and you can't Dane give us a little bit of <laughs> show us a crosstalk love. here, a little show us a little, a little love. Human. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've never had any sympathy when Tom York complains like they just in the 90s they just wanted me to play creep. It's like dude, that's take 3 minutes, play creep and then do whatever you want. Yeah. And you and we will pay you millions of dollars and we will love you, but don't resent the fact that you got big on a song that you now think is beneath you. Yeah, like it's not beneath you. If if we're going to pay you millions of dollars to show up to do what you want with your time, to show up where you want, when you want and do something, then this is like one of my pet peeves. I don't know how we got on this, but I hate celebrities that don't have any patience for or the humility or the humility for their fans. It's just yeah. like I'm sorry that you have to sign autographs, Julia yeah. Roberts. I'm sorry that you have to take some time out of your day. Mm-hmm. Like, and I get it. It would suck to not be able to go to the grocery store without having to sign autographs or have be mobbed if you were a big celebrity. That would be annoying but if that's the price you have to pay for being wealthy and famous and getting to do whatever you want pay yeah, that price the the yeah believe it or not i don't know where i came across this but the rock dwayne johnson has a really great riff on this where he talks about how uh he was at a restaurant one time this couple or somebody had had worked up the courage to ask for his picture or something and he had he agreed to do it but he flashed an annoyed look and he saw how deflated and dejected they were mm-hmm. and he just realized i mean his riff and you know he's dwayne johnson so this is all part of his shtick too and yeah. his persona and what he's selling to people but just his, the same his relatability and all yeah that. it's yeah. his relatability and his gratitude just to be where he is he's came all the way from having nothing but seven bucks in his pocket or something like that mm-hmm. right it's his story but him realizing that he, mean, he means a lot to a whole lot of people and this is the life that he's chosen and blessed with and not a lot of people have it and he has the power to make people feel stupid and miserable for liking him. Right, yeah. Or he has the power to make them feel happy simply by smiling and being glad to take his picture with people. And if he doesn't want to smile and be glad to take his picture with people, he needs to stop making movies and doing yeah. things like that. That is the cost and and it's a pretty great cost considering what he gets to have. Right. This is a really sweet riff. I don't remember where I saw it, but I yeah. saw it not too long ago. And I think he's right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, look, I'm not, I'm not saying that we're big celebrities or anything like that, but we certainly find ourselves in certain circumstances where people know us from the podcasts and they come up and they have a relationship with us, only we've never met them before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, it's, and it's weird and you have to figure out how to, deal with that, that how to engage but that what you don't properly. get to do is act like you don't have a relationship with those people right you need that to be kind and spend some time you've done the work of creating this thing and trying to love these people and provide content for them and so it can't just stop when you turn off the mics yeah and you shouldn't be bored by like they've been listening to you and now they want to take the one opportunity to talk back and you're not interested in hearing what they have to say that's pretty condescending brandon it is though that is why i never leave the house without sunglasses and a wig right well um <laughs> obviously when you've got male p- pattern balding like you do yes <laughs> i don't want people to notice that right yeah it's weird that you attach the wig to your chest though it, i really hey, think you should put it on your head that really would help 
Hey. <laughs> what do you have? Boy, how much do we t- want to talk about cats? <laughs> I was going to tell you guys, um, this was way back at the end of the beginning of this episode, not the right. end. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to Brendan, are you a time traveler? <laughs> yeah. It'd be a nice 200th episode uh, twist. Fun little fact. I don't think I've told the, the listeners of the booketing mm-hmm. or you guys. I had a chance when I was an undergraduate to play with a band that opened for the Newsboys. And I didn't. <laughs> I turned them down. You turned wow. them down. Wow. Yeah. It was a friend of a friend. He had this band and I, the friend told this guy that I could play the keyboard. So we got together. He heard me play mm-hmm. and wanted me to be in the band. He was friends with whatever that guy's name is, who is the lead singer of the Newsboys. And they were going to open for them at one of their tours. There've been like five different lead singers yeah. of the Newsboys. Peter Gabriel or somebody like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so... <laughs> There we go. Uh, Brendan, who's your dream concert? My dream concert. Oof, that's a hard one. Britney Spears. Definitely Britney Spears. I don't know, Nathan. I think I would pay a decent amount of money, which I suppose I could, but I haven't done it to see the Stones, actually. I mean, really? they are such you living really? le- okay. legends, and they're still together, and they're still, they still put it on a show. You know, it's not yeah. like seeing Zeppelin where... Robert Plant or whichever one was the singer yeah. is singing two octaves and lower, have, than lower and they have some girls to kind of hit the high notes and stuff. Like yeah. Mick Jagger still for being 9,000 years old and basically yeah, I mean, a mummy still, know, still brings it. You know, I, I watched that halftime show and that's the last time I needed to see. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that Jagger. was pretty lame. <laughs> 80 year old Mick Jagger in tight leather pants shaking Oof. himself around. Nobody ever needed to see that, even you know, Mick Jagger. I I have a I, res- I respect the, the, the I respect Stones. your decision, they, they, but I can't say that I agree with it. I mean, if we're talking nostalgia, then like I don't know, Paul Simon, someone from he quit, st- still alive from the Beatles, who's still alive, McCartney, <laughs> McCartney, but he's lost his voice, man. Has he lost his voice? Yeah, I don't know. This is that's that's a Dylan. I've seen Dylan. I have never. But seen I would Dylan. like to see Dylan, and uh, I saw him here at IU. Yeah, which I'd like time? to see the. Did you see it with me? No. Probably like eight years ago. Okay. I was in grad school still. Um, was it was it at Assembly Hall or was it? It was Assembly at, Hall, yeah. Was that the one with Elvis Costello and Amos Lee? No. Okay. That was at Assembly Hall too. Yeah. It was the other one. I think the one after that. Okay. And that was, people told me that wasn't his best performance. Yeah. I didn't go to that one and I yeah. feel like I'm grateful. So I would like to, I wouldn't mind seeing Dylan at his height. Yeah. A good Dylan performance. A good Dylan. Well, if we could go back in time, I mean, I'd see the, the, the Beatles. Beatles. Yeah. yeah. Jinx and Jinx. Jinx and Jinx. Yeah. The weird thing about the Beatles is all surviving. their, all the music that I love, they never performed in concert. That's the fascinating thing about them. Like Abbey Road, they never performed it. I don't know if it's even performable. I suppose it is, but you know, you could only see the Beatles up through Revolver. So... I don't know. Probably actually seeing the Beatles would be pretty annoying. Actually, you'd be in a stadium. There'd be a bunch of screaming. There'd be thousands of screaming teenage girls. You wouldn't be able to hear anything. I mean, this is why the Beatles stopped performing. So, yeah, I don't know who I would see. It's a hard, that's a good question. I would come to a podcast where you were recording, Brandon. Whoa, Nathan, I would come to one where you were recording. Thanks. You're welcome. Bad choice, but. (laughs) Modern, alive. Yeah, I said the Stones. I guess we could all just go see cats together. You know, boy, could we? Um, I, this is probably not the proper time to make this point, but this People episode said, is already all over the place. I don't want to talk about cats. People have said Hamilton's fun. 
Yeah, I would like to see Hamilton. Although it's coming to Disney Plus, so we'll yeah, all be no. able to see it in that sense. Um, and if I had thousands of dollars, I would see it right now. Yeah. Cats, I think you do have to look and see that theater is a different thing than movies and understand that this would work on theater. Like you don't get to watch the movie. I think it would be wrong to watch the movie and think, well, that's stupid. Like the whole concept of this thing is stupid, which I think you'd be forgiven for thinking because it seems like the whole concept of this thing is stupid. But if you think about a theatrical performance where it's basically just a review, it's just different cats get up and sing about themselves and they dance around and it's like But see, that even sounds and, stupid. <laughs> maybe it is, but I don't think all the people that went and saw cats are <coughs> no. stupid. Like I think my I think, dad had the worst night of his life going to watch cats. He saw the Broadway. Oh, he, yeah, he was drugged to the Broadway performance and he hated it. He was drugged and then he was taken. drugged and taken there. Yeah, <laughs> he woke up. It was pretty surreal. <laughs> <was> like, oh no! It's <laughs> <laughs> like what's going on? He was still a little groggy, <laughs> trying to figure out where he was. That would be terrifying. That would be terrifying. I think you could criticize it for being sensual, for being all kinds of things. Yes. But I, I, I can, I think, see where I might enjoy the theatrical performance. I guess I've seen enough YouTube videos and stuff. I'm, I'm kind of a cat's head, actually. Like, oh, I used to listen wow. to the album. And this I, movie sucks. Do, have we even told people who we are or what we're doing? I don't no. think so. Oh, wow. My name is Nathan. Is this a record for how long we've gone without telling it's people? It's got to be. It's got to be. My name is Nathan. I'm your humble and obedient host. The 200th time that I've said that, unless I've, it's probably an episode or two where I haven't said it, but I feel like I've said it 200 times probably. Brandon, this is not the 200th time, but it's got to be in the hundreds that I've said you're the scholar who's a baller of reading. That's right. I have you're bringing on every episode. Bringing all your ballerhood to cats. And you are going to provide some context. So, well, let's introduce Jake. He's the pastor yeah. who's a master of reading. Hey. And he loves not just Cats the Musical, but cats in general yeah i'm a big cat person he likes to drown them drown them, them mash the them stew them in a pot poison them he wears a cat jacket all the time mm -hmm. little cat tails all over it yeah yep of all the cats he's killed all the yep. cats. true story this true story is not going to be about you killing a cat is it because <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna have to cut it out <laughs> no <laughs> you'll never believe how it meowed <laughs> you'll never believe how it meowed i had a habit as a child of Pulling the tails off of kittens and then, no, <laughs> Jake is I've, a never, I've killer. never killed a cat in my life that I'm aware of. I might have hit one with a car or like something and not known it. Fun fact cat. about Jake Brandon, did you know he sleepwalks and kills cats every night <laughs> <laughs> and he's not aware of it? So, so earlier he in the day. always wakes up with earlier in the, blood so on his hands. We right. just bought a new house this weekend. Mm, and, exciting stuff. Yeah. Sign up for our Evansville newsletter, folks. Yeah. And so my dad was all my kids have been waiting for the day where we get into a house where we can have a dog or mm -hmm. something. And uh, this house is not that house. This is not, this that, is not house. that house. <laughs> <laughs> Me and Brandon folks just gave each other a high five because we both referenced Aragorn's speech <laughs> at the same time, yep. which is a classic booking reference. I don't see it on the internet that much. Do people like to make fun of that speech? They should. Anyway, yeah. go ahead. Anyhow. My, this is not that house. This is not that house. Yeah, so my parents were teasing me via text about, you know, buying us a dog as a housewarming gift. Right. My wife would be really happy to have a little kitten. She likes to have a cat, and I don't. I hate cats. I was at the place where I was just on the edge of saying, fine, if you want to have a kitten, a cat, 
when we get down here into this new house, you can't. Let me just say, the problem and with a kitten is it turns into a cat. If she, if your wife could just get a genetically created kitten, great. Yeah. But I So I was, I was right up to the edge of that, and then we started watching Cats, <laughs> the movie. And uh, You know, you're traumatized. I... I, I, I <laughs> I, now your wife doesn't want cats, and she never <laughs> well, wants to watch another movie. Jake, I used to be of the same mind. I thought I hated cats, yeah. but we actually got the right kind of cat that doesn't want a whole a lot dog. of attention. And it's yeah. but Is it's it still one of your fairly, kids, yeah, a dog cat, <laughs> still a fairly sweet cat, mm-hmm. good good mouser, yeah. But he's not he's not weird in the way that cats can be weird. Brandon actually dresses one of his middle children in a cat costume, yeah. rented from the Broadway show, and makes so them is he, eat mice. Is he declawed? We front, we clip his front claws. His front claws, yeah. so he's still able to catch mice. Yes. Okay. So, I mean, if the kids pick him up and he gets them with their back claws. What's his name? I like uh, this cat. I've Nemo. met this cat. Emo? Nemo. Nemo, yeah. So, we got him for Henry, and Henry was really obsessed with finding Nemo at that point, mm-hmm. and the cat's orange. Right. So, that's Nemo. Right. Yeah. So, he, and he's a great cat. So, this cat kind of won me over to the... I like barn liking, cats. Liking certain cats. Yeah. He's a, he, well, he is a barn cat. He's just a barn cat who's been domesticated. The problem is you can't control for good cats. A good cat is super right. friendly like a dog. I know yeah, a you cat. Can't, you can't, like with a dog, you can shape a dog's personality. And, right. I, and some dogs are just going to be more rough and hard to handle. But if you get the right breed, like it's going to basically, it might, the level of its friendliness, say, might vary. But it'll if you get a friendly breed, it's going to basically be friendly. Yeah. You can't go, like if you get a black lab. You can't really go wrong. It's just going to be a, a very small continuum of of energy and friendliness. Right. That's all going to basically be friendly and sweet. Right. You get a and cat. Very easy to mold personality. Of, very compliant. Yeah. You get a cat. What? You're rolling dice. You're rolling dice. You are right. Because you can get some awful cats. Yeah. Like we're, this cat has never once had an accident in the house. Mm-hmm. He always goes in his litter box. He's just, he's the ideal cat mm-hmm. and the ideal pet for me that he don't, he, he doesn't want much attention. That's the wonderful thing about cats. Like dogs suck because they require They're so needy. much energy and I'm not a big, I'm not like a person that lives in a trailer park and wants to just keep a dog in a cage because it was cute as a puppy. That kind of thing. I mean, I'm, if any of our listeners have dogs that they keep in cages, I love you, but you are a monster. I think, yeah, but you are a monster. I think if you're going to have a dog you should be, I mean, I'm sorry to get on my high horse here, folks. But I think if you're going to have a dog, you need to be able to take care of it and let, give, let, you know, it, run. let it run, give it some, either you have some property or you're going to commit to taking it for a walk and stuff. It is wonderful that cats don't require that, but then they smell bad and they might not love you. Yeah. They're, they're just proud. And yeah. if you get a friendly, I, I, we, we had a cat, a roommate of mine had a cat and this cat was named Bing after Bing Crosby, which is a fantastic name for a cat. And always go with a weird human name, I think. Don't go with like Rover or something like that, but find a celebrity human name. Or I'm a big fan of a Mr., like a Mr. Buckles for a rabbit. Had a landlord named Mr. Buckles, always thought he should have been a rabbit. Yeah, I think we <laughs> named, uh, I think Mr. Buckles exists. Yeah, I think Mr. Buckles appeared in, in, some, in some Sanityville sketches of some type. He's like a python or something. <laughs> yeah, he's a python or something. Or a long name like George Washington jones for a cat these are the naming conventions that you should follow i think that you should oh i don't know i think that there are are some good themes that you can go with with dogs and cats so if you got a dog and call them serious black and a cat and you call their mini you know can you just go harry potter themed or something like that'd be pretty fun like a themed 
all your pet like your yeah you've, you've got, got Minerva McGonagall and you've got get a, I, had, I had a big collar mini and then you've got Sirius Black and yep. I had a big golden lab when I was growing up. Well, we got him when I was a teenager, um, and I named him Traddles after a Dickens character. Mm-hmm. Huh. Oh, that's a good name. Yeah, yeah. Dick's being really polite about that. Yeah. It's not a good name. <laughs> you, you don't like the name Traddles? No. And, and what's more, I think you're fat. Whoa. Um, Traddles is a great name, Nathan. No, you're wrong. I, I don't think you're fat. Um, and, and, and let's be clear, folks. Brandon is not fat. And how dare any of you suggest it? How dare? We need to stop this fatness narrative with Brandon. It's not kind. It's not good. We are against it. Thank you, Nathan. Now, what are we talking I about? Agree. Anyone with fewer than five chins is not fat. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And Brandon has fewer than five chins. Fewer. <laughs> we leave it to your imagination, folks. <laughs> I look like that senator from Naboo. Clone Wars. The one with all the chins. Yeah. Yeah. You know yeah. what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah. So I still haven't told, I've introduced us now. I still haven't told people what we're doing though. We are going to review the movie Cats because we thought that would be fun. Why did we think that? Because <laughs> the internet never thought of doing that. Like We thought it would be fun because it's a, we'll, we'll get to talk about T.S. Eliot right. and yeah. modernism. Brandon, finally a, as you Brandon know, of- now 200 times in a row, Brandon has managed to bring modernism into discussions that have nothing to do I with modernism. I was studying modernism. You literally have a son named Elliot. Elliot. That was my field of study mm-hmm. in grad school. And Brandon loves to talk modernism. And so Brandon has now brought T.S. Eliot. He's probably name dropped T.S. Eliot. I'm going to say over a hundred times. I brought podcast. him into our episode of C.S. Lewis. Yeah. If, if there's an opportunity to talk about it, Brandon will do it. He was a landmark figure in American letters. He was a landmark figure in American letters. So we thought, so I thought it would be fun and sadistic to make the guys watch Cats then Brandon could talk about T.S. Eliot. He could give some context and then we could watch Cats. Ha ha. Isn't that funny? Now, what I didn't calculate into that equation is that I would have to watch Cats. <laughs> <laughs> and then we would have to talk about Cats. <laughs> and what is there to say about Cats? I'm sure everybody on the internet has done their their hot take. I mean, it's like kicking a something when it's already down. What's the metaphor that I'm looking for? Yeah, it's like kicking a kitten when the kitten's already yeah. down. It's something that you should definitely do. It's something that you should definitely do. Yes. So we're going to review cats. I don't know that we're going to spend all that much time on cats because I don't know what there is to say about it. To me, like, it's more fun to make... Uh, sorry, I'm just going to be a snob, folks. It's more fun to make fun of something that the world's is not... Good. Is good. Yeah, basically. <laughs> yeah, basically. It's more fun. I mean... We're, what 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 courage does it take? We're we're punching down when we punch cats, so I don't know how much time we really need to spend there. But also, it might be fun to kick the cat a little bit. So we'll we'll give our review of cats, and we'll have a little fun with it. And I think there's some things to be said about Rebel Wilson and what they were thinking. And but first, what were they thinking? I have some theories on that. We'll get to it when we get to it. But first, you need to provide Brandon some much needed context on. Thomas mm. Stearns Elliot, the writer of Cats. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the playwright. Technically. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Technically. Because if people really don't know, Andrew Lloyd Webber based his hit musical Cats, one of the most successful musicals of all time, which was turned into this turkey of a movie, no pun intended, on 
Old Possum's Book of Practical Cat. Which is a book of light verse for children written by T.S. Eliot. Yeah. And so this is Brandon's big chance to finally just talk about. You guys think this will be the last time I ever mention him? Like, is that what you're hoping? Yeah, just get it out of your system, man. That is what we were hoping. Yeah. Well, that's not going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, guys. And that I refuse to talk so about it. So we watched this so. movie for nothing. <laughs> Trash. You guys lost. <laughs> <laughs> Final joke is on you. Oh, man. At least we got to see uh, Idris Elba say, McAfee, and disappear. Um, Tefo, because this is really happening. Brennan's going to give like a whole bunch of context on T.S. Eliot, and then we're going to talk about cats. That's this episode, and it's our 200th episode, and we love you. And we're having fun. We are having lots of fun. Yeah. So let's do this. Let's do it. So uh, you've already referenced in our opening the line, the opening line to the wasteland. April is the cruelest month. It is. And we're going to dive right in with that line. Breeds because, lilacs out um, of something, something. Yeah, that line is getting a lot of repl. It's it's getting. 2020 is the cruelest year. Not 2020 is the cruelest year, but what people so that line's getting a lot of replay now. People are looking back to that line, and the reason is is because. That poem was published in 1922, but it was conceived of and even started as early as 1918 when T.S. Eliot and his wife actually had the Spanish flu in December of 1918. And so there are a lot of Spanish flu overtones in that poem in the wasteland. And so two major cultural events, I probably reference this even more than I do T.S. Eliot, were taking place in the 1900s. And one was World War I, Mm. which would completely reshape everything about the world. First time the Booketing listeners are hearing of this. And it would have a a significant emotional, psychological effect on T.S. Eliot. He didn't fight. He wanted to, but he was actually, for various reasons, kept from fighting. So he did try to fight. He wasn't a coward who didn't go and fight, but... He was kept from fighting. Then you had that, and then right at the end of it, you had the Spanish flu that swept through America and killed millions, the world, and killed millions of people. I mean, I think they speculate between 50 to 100 million people died from the Spanish flu. And so T.S. Eliot and his wife at the time, Vivian, they both got it in December. Um, He wrote, in fact, that it left him so very weak afterwards and had affected her nerves, this is Vivian, that she can hardly sleep at all. And so and she was already a fairly sickly woman and it would take them years to recover completely hmm. from this flu that they had had. And so that's, uh, I, f- I thought that would be an appropriate hook to get mm-hmm. us involved to get us in to T.S. Eliot, because this poem who, I wonder how many people actually read this poem. Have you guys ever read the wasteland? I have read the wasteland. Yeah. 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 When did you read the wasteland? Was it for high school or did you just read it for pleasure? Uh, I don't remember. I did read it in high school. I think I think it was assigned in high school. Yeah, I've read it a couple maybe times. Maybe once since then. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's one of these poems that you you might have to read in like an AP English class mm. if you take English and of classes. Of course, you can totally understand it in, in your. Yeah, and it's it is a very enigmatic, difficult poem to understand, and that was on purpose because T. S. Eliot was trying to do a new sort of thing with poetry, and so to kind of get at. What he was trying to do, actually, before we even get to his bio. Wow. Wow. We're going to do things completely different today, guys. (laughs) Give a little bit of a background as to where we were in literary history, Mm -hmm. because things were rapidly changing. Um, Modernism was catalyzed. Catalyzed? (laughs) By World War I. (laughs) Can we just pause? Which was a... Catastrophe. It was a very big catastrophe. Left some people catonic. Yeah. Kind of brought the whole culture to a pause. People weren't feline very good. 
<laughs> wait, wait, our listeners are still applauding. Let's just hold for a second. No, okay. Oh, they're oh, still wow, going. Wow. Yeah. Oh, wow, amazing people. You've waited 200 episodes for this yeah. sort of wit and whimsy. Yeah, you're finally getting it. I'd like to thank so many people. <laughs> Brendan, you're almost as magical as Mr. Mistopheles. Uh-huh. Um. <laughs> <laughs> one of my favorite things on the booking is when I say something really stupid, and then Brandon tries to just roll over it <laughs> and move forward as quickly as possible. <laughs> Never gets old. Anyway, I think people are done up apologizing so we can get back to are it. people oh. <laughs> are people apologizing yeah. people should be apologizing for applauding like that they're very sorry yeah why would you applaud a bunch the... of cat puns it's really sad people it is sad come on folks yeah. you can let's do better get on yeah with the show all right let's go taking a drink of water mm-hmm. now we're gonna get on all right let's do it all right so where were we where were we where was literary history well to get there, we need to talk about a guy that I don't know we ever have mentioned before, T.E. Holm. Have we ever mentioned T.E. Holm? I don't think so. I don't know how we've talked about modernism for so long and yet never once mentioned T.E. Holm. But this guy was very influential. Um, H-U-L-M-E, right? Yes, H-U-L-M-E. He was involved with all sorts of interests. He was a British thinker in the late, early 1900s, late 1800s. He talked some about classicism and philosophy, but his big contribution to literature was through Imagist poetry. And so one of the things he really believed, and I had the line here somewhere, let's see, where did it go? Holm wrote that the language of poetry is a visual, concrete one. Images and verse are not mere decoration, but the very essence. And so in other words, what he was interested in, and he was very uh, much a proponent of free verse. And so like in the early, in the mid 1800s, you had Walt Whitman with his free verse, people trying to experiment with a new way of writing poetry. Walt Whitman wanted free verse so that you could express like the human emotions and feelings about the world. Holm wanted a way of actually looking closely at the object itself and so that you could then accurately portray feelings through the world, through the image. And this would be very influential in T.S. Eliot later when he, when he would wrote his essay, Tradition and the Individual Talent. But imagism was kind of the foundation for what would become modernism. You mix imagism with a little bit of the experimentalism of Pound and just the experimentalism that was in the air at the time. And then you throw it in and you explode it with World War I and you get what we know of as modernism today. He was kind of the father of it and it's probably easiest. Imagist, it's, I think it's easiest with imagism to just kind of hear some of the imagist poetry. Mm-hmm. So here's one from T.E. Holm, Autumn. A touch of cold in the autumn night, I walked abroad and saw the ruddy moon lean over a hedge like a red-faced farmer. I did not stop to speak, but nodded, and round about were the wistful stars and white faces like town children. Fairly simple enough, but he's trying to portray what it feels like to be out in an autumn night and taking these metaphors and images and combining them together, the red-faced farmer, the moon, white faces like children, wistful stars, to accurately portray this image and really focus on the image itself. The next character then to enter into the scene would be this guy named Ezra Pound, this kind of Wild West strange figure who would heavily influence the lives of the major modernists. He was significant in getting James Joyce's Ulysses published. He was also very significant in T.S. Eliot's life, as we'll see. He took up the image in imagism, and one of his one of his protégés would later um, have this as kind of the three tenets of it. One, direct treatment of the thing, whether subjective or objective. 
to use absolutely no word that does not contribute to the presentation, as regarding rhythm, to compose in sequence of the musical phrase, not in sequence of the metronome. So in other words, they wanted poetry to break away from strict adherence to meter and to be as sheer as possible with word usage. Obviously, that, that was like became the tenet of modern American writing with Hemingway. And this is where Hemingway would get it. This is how he was heavily influenced by imagism as well. And then just cl- carefully looking at the thing itself, direct treatment of the thing. All these things would become extremely important to modernism. And this was all happening in the very early 19-teens. So this kind of provided some of the energy that would become part of modernism. But the foundational principle at this point was to try and what Pound would continually tell his followers and the people he was trying to make better, to make it new. And Pound would always say that, make it new. And so everybody was just trying to do something different. They were all looking back to tradition. They were all looking back to the old way of doing things. And they were like, we need to do something different. We need to do something new. And so they were trying to find new ways of doing that. This is the environment that T.S. Eliot would first step into before World War I would change everything, when he was a young man trying to make his way as a poet, when he was publishing things like J. Alfred Prufrock and stuff like that. Uh, someone who would be influenced by guys like Pound to try and do something different with verse, try and do something, not just experimenting for experiment's sake, but feeling that whatever they were trying to do, the old way of doing things wasn't satisfying. Right? No, that's the... I think that's an interesting point to make, because if you read the essays and things that these people wrote, which they did write them, modernists were nothing if not self-aware about what they were doing. I think you could distinguish it perhaps from something like postmodernism, because they really think they're objectively doing something better. Like, this is how we can improve the art form. And that's anybody... It's, it's evolution. It's, yeah, we're moving forward. and that We've could be, evolved. This is progress. And that could be Frank Lloyd Wright with architecture. It could be Picasso with painting. Like, we are now moving to the new thing. And this, this is not only how I'm doing it, which is what a postmodernist might say. This is how it should be done. Yeah. Hemingway is actually showing us the way forward. That's right. Towards, He's learned from all previous generations. He has found the new evolution. He is, he's the Ubermensch. Yeah. Right? And that's what they're all trying to do is take things to the next level, the right. next stage. And it, it's not something different so much as it is something better. And they, they actually believed it. Like if they had these theories and, you know, make it new, like that was actually going to achieve object on some objective level, something better, which I think is not how people so much think about it now. Well, no, the idea of, a, of an objective better is... In the arts, especially. It's lost. It's lost. Yeah, yeah. And I think part of, and we'll see that, I think, when we get to World War One and how it changed things, mm-hmm. because that kind of devastated everything. But yeah, at that point, they did kind of, and you're right, the, this world, this art world was small, but it was also huge in the sense of who was involved. So Frank Lloyd Wright, Picasso, Matisse, all these guys who were, Matisse, I think, was a part of this yeah, school of all thinking the as well. And all, these, all these people who we think of as significantly. Cezanne, who we've yeah, been talking about. Changing the world of art, Charles changing the world of Gauguin. literature. Yeah. A young James Joyce would have been involved with Dubliners, mm. all He's these. Too early. Say what? I was just Charles trying to Gauguin. throw in a Moonin and yeah. Suspense reference. Yeah. Too early, Strickland. And so one of the ways they saw to do this was by having poetry, following T.E. Holmes' advice, that was focused on the thing itself. So here, for example, is Ezra Pound's famous, the apparition of these faces in the crowd, petals on a wet black bough. And that's the whole poem, right? That's the poem. Yeah, it's a little, it's a haiku in, to an extent. Here's another one. 
This is Sea Poppies by H.D., who was also another Imagist poet from the time. Amber husk, fluted with gold, fruit on the sand, marked with a rich grain. Treasure, spilled near the shrub pines, to bleach on the boulders. Your stalk has caught root among wet pebbles and drift flung by the sea in grated shells and split conch shells. Beautiful widespread fire upon leaf. What meadow yields so fragrant a leaf as your bright leaf? It's nice. Mm-hmm. But that's, a, that's sea poppies. And what you notice is the image, the thing itself, very minimal use of words, focused on the thing and not traditional meter. It's not like, this is not a sonnet. It's not a quatrains. It's not anything like that. And so- Just trying to evoke an image. Yeah. And so a lot of even what we think of as poetry today came because of these people doing new things with words in this early period. And so T.S. Eliot would walk right into this and he would be experimenting with things when he was at Harvard as a young, so he would got involved with the Harvard uh, um, magazine at that time, which would publish some of his early poems. One of the things that really would influence T.S. Eliot too, was he got his hands on a little book. It was a book on symbolism by Arthur Simmons, where he talked about the French symbolist movement and would introduce T.S. Eliot to a guy named Jules Laforgue, who was a French symbolist poet. And what the symbolists believed was fairly similar to the imagists, but they were more... Well, they would, like you would expect with the symbolist, to be more dreamy, to be more abstract and not as directly concerned with things themselves, but with how images, but not like images of actual reality, can shape, can convey truth. And so T.S. Eliot became very interested in, in fact, some of his earliest poetry is attempts at writing French poetry. Yeah, he would be heavily influenced by all this. In fact, when he came to finally meet Ezra Pound, one of the reasons Pound would take up the crusade and try to make T.S. Eliot who he became was because he kind of saw a kindred spirit with T.S. Eliot. Ezra Pound had more of an oriental influence, which is why he would write things like Station at the Metro, which is more of a haiku. T.S. Eliot kind of had more of the French medieval influence, which is why he became who he became, which makes sense with like the Wasteland was heavily influenced. In fact, we could technically read the Wasteland when we, if we ever get to, when we do get to 1500, mm-hmm. not if we ever, when we get to 1500 and we do our Arthurian romance stuff, because another strain of influence on that was um, this idea of the Fisher King myth mm-hmm. that came to him through Jonathan Fraser's book, The Golden Bow. What Fraser argued is that the Fisher King myth was like the archetypal myth. And uh, then there was another, um, what was her name? Jessie, I forget her last name, but she also wrote another, she wrote a book kind of taking up that theme as well that was closer to Eliot's time. And so he had read these books and he was very influenced by this idea of the Fisher King myth and how then this myth is, if as Nietzsche claimed, God is dead and the king is God then the land is in ruins. And so that's where the wasteland comes from, is this idea of the ruined land because of the dead king, or the king who at least cannot heal himself any longer. And so the land is in ruins. That's kind of, this is kind of some of the intellectual background that'll get us T.S. Eliot. Right. Okay. I feel like I'm starting to- Get us done to cats. Understand cats. You're starting to understand cats. Oh man, is this supposed to get us to cats? Rebel Wilson's scenes (laughs) are suddenly coming into focus for me. Oh man. Forgetting this is a cats episode. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's not. It's a TSL yeah, episode for okay. your purposes. Yes. So we'll, we'll bring the cats of it. Yeah, we'll bring. We'll, yeah. we'll bring the cats. This back. episode is a little by fur. Just gonna pause for applause again. 
Cated. Bifurcated. <laughs> yep. That's very good, Nathan. Very good. Yep. Thank you. So, who was T.S. Eliot? So who let's was give T.S. A, Eliot? Let's just give a quick overview. There's not a whole lot you need to know about him, but he had two kind of periods to his life. The first would be up to 1927, when two significant things happened. One, he becomes a British subject as opposed to an American subject. And two, he joins the Anglican Church. Um, and everything before that, all the friends he had made, Virginia Woolf, Ezra Pound, all these people would see that as a renunciation of everything they believed in. And in fact, Virginia Woolf, as we mentioned in our C.S. Lewis episodes, would say about T.S. Eliot that he is now dead to us. Right. right? Basically. That, we've lost poor Tom or yeah, something Yeah, we've lost like poor Tom, right? He's dead to us now or something like that. But it's suggesting that, that she would have nothing more to do with him. Mm. He was born in St. Louis. In 1888, September 26th, he came from a fairly, well, not just fairly, a very prominent family. They had deep roots in New England with uh, puritanical roots that he would actually reference later on in his life. So he, he felt like he was a New England boy who had been brought to St. Louis to be raised. He was raised mo- mainly by his mother and her sisters and some female relatives. And so he always felt that he felt more comfortable around women. He was a sickly child as well, and so he couldn't go out. Like It wasn't because he was just what people would assume was a soft poet. He like actually had legitimate physical issues that kept him from going outside. And so he had to stay inside, and he read a lot. And he, and he especially loved Mark Twain, things like that, in his, young, in his boyhood. But he really had no other options. The way that he got his adventure and this need that he had to go out and be with the other boys was by reading, because he couldn't go out and play him. And this also kept him from going and fighting in the war later as well, even though he would want to do that too. So, but yeah, his family was fairly wealthy. His dad owned a a successful business in St. Louis. It was called the Hydraulic Press Brick Company. His uh, paternal grandfather, William Greenleaf Elliott, established a Unitarian church. He came from a very uh, prominent Boston family. One thing that this would make him feel later in life was that he really lacked a firm identity. His family had come to St. Louis, but they were really New England and weren't accepted there. He said that when he went to Harvard, he had the Southern drawl of a, he used a slur. And so people kind of looked down on him at Harvard. In fact, um, he didn't, as an undergraduate, really have that impressive of a record at Harvard. He was put on academic probation before he graduated. He had these physical limitations. I think, yeah, here it is. An inguinal hernia is what he suffered from. I don't Mm. know what that means, or inguinal. He attended Smith Academy, which was a preparatory school, a division of Washington University, which is still, I think, a fairly significant school in St. Louis. He was very interested in Latin, ancient Greek, and other languages. Um, He started writing some poetry when he was a young boy as well, but he burned it all later in life, saying that it was was dreary and not worth keeping, really. (laughs) And so we don't really have access to his earliest stuff. Around the same time, he went to Harvard in 1906, 1909, where he at first studied what is best they didn't have it they didn't call it comparative literature at the time but that's what it was and his ma was in english literature but he didn't really have distinction he didn't graduate with honors from um, harvard what's more important about his time at harvard was how his getting involved with a magazine there harvard uh, journal and getting some poems published at the time the things that would eventually become his first volume of poetry which I was reading one article. It's interesting. It's his first volume of poetry. It took five years for him to sell all the copies. 
and it actually was. So do you guys remember boxcar books? Yeah. <laughs> you remember how they used to have those little pamphlets in here that were just like stapled together? Mm-hmm. They were just like local authors would put these things together. Apparently his first volume of poems was kind of like that. <laughs> Basically a, a small little publisher in the area got a hold of his poems and put them together cheaply. But it's a, it was an Ran interesting thing. Yeah, it wasn't like this was a big deal or anything. It was like what the poets at the time who wanted to make a name for themselves would do. Go and get a, po- a book of poetry published like that. Um, all that to say that he didn't, he, wasn't, he didn't have a whole lot of success as a poet yet. He would go off to uh, France for a while. He would study philosophy at the Sorbonne. And then he lived in Oxford for a little while. What's significant about Oxford, it's there that he would meet Ezra Pound. And it's there that Ezra Pound would introduce him to Vivian Leigh a governess who he would eventually marry because he felt that he wanted to have some solidity and get his feet under him. And it was a rushed marriage and turned out to be a very bad marriage. Not the woman that played Scarlett O'Hara in Gone with the Wind, by the way. No. Anyone was wondering. Um, And it's a sad story because uh, he tried to make it work. She tried to make it work, but she was, she suffered from a lot of illness and he himself was depressed and sickly. The flu hit. It made things worse for them. He was struggling financially. He wanted to be a writer, and so to try and make ends meet, he would write some scholarly articles and reviews that he would send off to magazines, and these would be eventually collected and published as The Sacred Woods, and they would change, like, criticism forever. But at the time, what's interesting about it is he wasn't really doing it to change criticism forever. There was a narrative at one point that he was, like, hoping to just completely rewrite uh, um, the history of literature with these our essays, you had some like scholars who tried to make that argument, but then letters came out and stuff like that where it just showed that no, he was just trying to make ends meet. And they were basically like Roger Ebert reviews. He was sending these things out, just trying to make some money. And so that's kind of, I think that like a film critic is a way to look at him at that time. But these would eventually be put together as the sacred wood. And like I said, would heavily influence the way that literary criticism worked up into pretty recently, like probably the last great new critic, and he would hate me for saying this, but he was still as new critical as, as we have anymore would have been Harold Bloom. And um, this all comes from his essay, Tradition and the Individual Talent, T.S. Eliot. And what he argued there was that when we have the greatest art is when the artist can completely empty themselves of any sort of egotism and just completely open themselves to tradition and their talent becomes like a cat, like a, he used this like chemical image of this agent re- reacting with another agent. So the poet emptying himself reacts with tradition. And so together they catalyze into this thing, the poem. Catalyze. Yeah, catalyze. I'm going to try to use that as many times as possible. Should. Meow. Are we going to decide which of the cats we'd be? We will. Yes. Oh, Stay tuned, folks. Oh, boy. But yeah, that was, so guys like I.A. Richards later on would take up his, the mantle and would start this school called New Criticism, where they would argue, Robert Penn Warren was a big new critic as well, who people know that I also really love Penn Warren, especially when it comes to poetry. And but there's somebody that you've mentioned poetry. more than T.S. Eliot, it's Robert Penn Warren. It's because his book, Understanding Poetry, is amazing, but it's largely taking up the work that T.S. Eliot had done, where the argument is that we need to look at the poem, the thing itself, and understand the poem apart from... Now we don't, I've kind of moved away from this as people will hopefully be able to pick up one, but where the poem matters, who cares about the author, basically. Mm -hmm. Let's just look at the poem. Let's see what the poem itself can tell us by just a close read. And so the act of close reading 
And that all came from this whole sort of new criticism, which is interesting because a lot of the things that would become like landmarks of what would become very conservative thinking came out of a very liberal, progressive agenda at first. Hmm. Um, with T.S. Eliot pushing towards this new sort of way of looking at things, he was pushing against the biographical tendencies of the schools at the time and just saying, now nah, let's just look at tradition and the individual talent. This would become the new criticism and would eventually kind of crystallize into conservative thought. And so guys like, um, who's the guy that we sometimes pretend like we are? Oh, um, William F. Buckley. Yeah, William F. Buckley. And Mm -hmm. then things that would even leak into like the classical movements of the recent decades, right? Mm -hmm. They all look back to their precedent as like being Rome, but actually their precedent is like the radical liberal progressives in the modern era. One generation's liberalism and another generation's conservatism, I guess. Yeah, so it's really interesting. It's a fun fact. But so what's important there is just to understand how heavily influential he was on the future of American letters, on the future of world letters. And as he became successful, so Ezra Pound would help him edit down to the wasteland, and then the wasteland would take off and become huge, and he would become eventual Nobel Prize winning poet. Surprisingly small amount of poems that he's written, but even those small amount of poems have been heavily influential. So The Hollow Men, Song of Jail for Prufrock, The Wasteland, Ash Wednesday, and four quartets, poems that most people have at least heard of. And they've had significant influence on, if not on the way people try to write poetry, because there have been a lot of attempts at imitating Eliot, but not many that have been successful. It was more, it's more arguable that his influence was more on the way that people think about poetry and think about literature. One of the reasons this was possible is because around the same time that he published The Wasteland in 1922, he started a little magazine called Criterion which would eventually be restarted as the new criterion, Hmm. right? So he was very heavily influential in conservative thinking. Um, The new criterion would be Buckley's magazine, right? Right. Unless I'm wrong about that. I think so. And what he would do at the criterion is he would become a standard maker in literature. So he would publish people like James Joyce and Virginia Woolf. And all these authors who would eventually become huge, he would become their champion. He would become the Ezra Pound to them. And so the criterion would eventually help establish the new voices in in global literature. After that, about 20 years later, he actually, he got to become editor at Faber and Faber, which at the time, I mean, it still exists, Faber and Faber, but it was one of the most significantly influential publishing houses. And so by the time that he won the Nobel Prize, and he also was like he received one of the highest honors, the Order of Merit or something from Britain. It was because he really was, even though he, for everybody who had met him, said he was quiet, he was humble, he would never really assume that this was T.S. Eliot when you met him. And if you ever look at him, I mean, he just looks, he looks like my piano professor growing up, but just like, he looks like a professor, but not anybody that would be world changing like this. But yeah, a little bit owlish. Mm-hmm. But he was single-handedly one of the most influential outside of the guy who edited Hemingway. Perkins. Yeah, Perkins. He and Perkins were probably the two most influential 20th century literary figures. Pound you could throw in there as well, but in tastemaking for what literature became because of the influence they had. And he had significant influence, T.S. Eliot did. So to go back, so that was his, his first period that made that. And then you had his transition. So the second, the maybe one of the last things to understand about T.S. Eliot is that 
he had built up this image of himself as this great literary critic, this great literary mind, this great poet, this new modernist that was kind of holding the banner for the modernist world. He was leading the charge. We haven't really addressed it much. You can go back and listen to all my modernist episodes. But once World War I happened, and then you also had the Spanish flu happen, T.S. Eliot finally had the thought, well, now is this time to write this poem that I've had ideas for for a long time. And it was this poem that is one of the most difficult poems ever written called The Wasteland. And the basic gist of it is that, so at the end of the poem, it says these fragments I have shored against my ruins. And so the idea is that the modern world is is left in shambles. Our attempts at finding truth, our attempts at finding God, our attempts at making sense of the madness are just absurd. And there's nothing left except this kind of empty hollowness that you would see in the hollow men and this sadness at realizing that this is where we are. And you would have the hollow men. J. Alfred Prufrock, Prufrock was earlier than that. And so it was more just about like the irony. It was an ironic look at a modern man. It still Mm -hmm. had some sadness to it. But the point I want to make here is that there was always this undercurrent though with T.S. Eliot. So like James Joyce, there's always an undercurrent of a little bit of spite and also a little bit of narcissistic pride. With T.S. Eliot in all of his poems, there's always, so like one of the last things that happens is he was, he was heavily influenced by Buddhism, Buddhism at the same, around this time as well. So he quotes like Shanti, 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 peace, 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 and trying to find, and, and works these into the end of the wasteland because he was trying to hope that maybe there was a way out. Maybe there was some way to find resolution. Like he knew Yeats. Yeats had found some resolution, he thought, in mysticism and theosophy. So he had some hope that maybe the occult, maybe Buddhism, maybe something would offer him a way out. And it was in 1927 that he realized, he told one of his friends that, you know, I'm a Puritan by heritage, I think my whole life has been leading me, like basically like C.S. Lewis said, through a series of checkmates to get me to this point where he realized that the only resolution to all of this was becoming a Christian. And so he joined the Anglican church, renounced everything that he had professed up to that point and became a new man. And that's the rest of his story is the T.S. Eliot of the 1930s on to the end of his life is a T.S. Eliot who um, because he died in 1965, around the same time as C.S. Lewis, they were pretty much contemporaneous to one another. He would kind of do what C.S. Lewis did, just not as popularly, because I, because to be fair to Lewis, T.S. Eliot could not write in the way that Lewis could write. Mm-hmm. He couldn't write the essays that Lewis could write. He just couldn't. He did, or he didn't want to. But he always sounded more academic. But he did enter into a lot of these cultural debates. And so he had essays on Christian society. He had essays on literary culture and Christianity. And he really entered into this conservative warfare that would be carried on by guys like William F. Buckley later on with the new criterion. Was I right about that? He was a contributor. That's not yeah. the magazine that he edited. The magazine that he edited, I forget what that was called. But he was a contributor yeah. to that one. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, but the new criterion would become that sort of, Absolutely. It would take up that banner. Yes. And so- He would still write poetry, but he was more becoming an apologist, an intellectual man who realized the weight that he had on his shoulders now as having this extraordinary responsibility, power of shaping the way the world looked at literature, the way the world looked at the conservatism that he had turned to. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, that means... National Review. The National Review. Is Buckley's magazine. That's right. Yeah. Thank you. And of course, that means that... The Academy today really has mixed feelings about T.S. Eliot. When I was in grad school, 
when I was doing my coursework in grad school, it, the rage was how T.S. Eliot was an anti-Semite. Mm. And everybody was talking about how he was an anti-Semite. Now, so we're doing this five months after Princeton finally released his letters to Emily Hale. And so she's one character in his story that we haven't talked about yet. And so then kind of wrap things up. In 1957, he would remarry. So in 1932, actually, five years actually after he joined the church, Vivian was not getting better. And so they divorced and he actually had her committed to an insane asylum for a while to try and help her. Their marriage was very troubled. So Bertrand Russell was one of his mentors and actually ended up, people think, seduced Vivian. Like he used their friendship as a cover to just seduce his wife, hmm. T.S. Eliot's wife. And so they had had some difficult things happen. But T.S. Eliot is not without fault here, right? I mean, he could have loved this woman better than he did. And all during this period, he was writing letters to this woman named Emily Hale, who he had met years before he ever met Vivian through a cousin of his who was into theater when he was in Harvard at Boston. And he had kept up contact with her and then it kind of, kind of fallen off. But then once things got bad between him and Vivian, he had picked contact back up with Emily and was writing letters to her all the way up until about 1956, committed a emotional adultery through these letters. But even after he divorced Vivian, they still kept up this correspondence, but it never consummated. But there is that that has just, I mean, we can't do this episode without at least mentioning that fact. This is not something that anybody knew until this people year. People suspected it. Right. Because people knew about Emily Hill, but people didn't know of it until this year. They didn't know the details. They didn't well, well she actually submitted the <laughs> letters from, so if, if it was just left up to Elliot, we would never know, but yeah. she submitted Elliot's letters to her to Princeton. Yeah, but told them that they could not open them until 2020. And then once she did that, Elliot said, okay, I'm going to provide my side of the story since it's already going to be out there. So I think he actually provided some documentation that was released also in 2020. Yeah. And so those letters are available. You can go and read them. But towards the end of his life, he did meet one Valerie. It said like her name, Esme Valerie. So he met her. He had a secretary at Faber and Faber named Esme. She was 30 years younger than him, but they decided to marry and actually had a very happy marriage from about 1957 on to his death. She would be the one who would be responsible for kind of overseeing his estate once he died, making sure that his, the things that needed to get published got published. And it would be like shortly before they got married that he would cut off contact completely with Emily Hale. So he was faithful to that extent to his new wife, but he had pursued this relationship up until that point before then. So, but yeah, I mean, I've been going on about him for a while. Is there anything that I haven't mentioned that you guys think I need to mention? In fact, when he died, he actually got on in a balloon and was taken to the to Oz to the Havishad lair. Yeah, that is exactly Oz. Now, Brandon, when did T.S. Eliot first conceive the hit musical? This is the one thing that I yeah I've been waiting to hear about. How did he come up with? that floating tire that they go to the Havishad lair. I think it's a balloon in the movie. Like a, what were his thoughts on Idris Elba as McCavity? Fun, fun points to make here, Nathan. Okay. One, he didn't ever really imagine that these poems he wrote would be perverted this way. <laughs> um, <laughs> a little sneak peek into Brandon's opinion on this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> now he did like the theater. In fact, I read a lot of Scott, uh, pe essays and stuff arguing that 
are just pointing out the fact that like his earliest work was dramatic monologue. It was like Robert Browning mm-hmm. sort of stuff, J. Alfred Prufrock. And so and then later, in, in, when he became a Christian, the work he turned to was trying to become like the modern Shakespeare. Right. He didn't ever call himself that, but like he wanted to find a way to elevate common speech in theater. And so like his most famous is murdering the cathedral, but that's what he would turn to in the thirties and forties would be theater. And so he was very much interested in theater and he would become influential on theater. Actually, like guys like Harold Pinter, interestingly Mm -hmm. enough, point to T.S. Eliot's plays as being very influential on them in the sense that he tried to find a way where he could use, and this is something he got from, I mean, there's so much we could say here. So we talked about Charles Baudelaire when we talked about- We uh, just talked about him. Oh, uh, it was the Moon and Sixpence episodes, yeah. yeah. And so he was heavily influenced by those sorts of French thinkers. And so Charles Baudelaire was all about the city and Paris. And so like cities were very important to T.S. Eliot as well, having grown up in St. Louis right next to the river and the river would become very much of a prominent figure in the four quartets and then the Seine and Paris. And I I think you say the Seine or the Seine. But um, I know I always get it wrong, whatever yeah. it is. But, and so place, location like that would be very much an influence on him, but also, especially in Paris, the theater that he would have access to or with his cousin in Harvard going to the theater. And so, yes, he was interested in theater, but I don't think he would have ever, could have ever imagined what would become a theater on Broadway. <laughs> well, Brandon, let me just point out. Yeah. Mrs. Elliot gave the rights to Andrew Lloyd Webber. Yeah. She said Tom would have liked this. <laughs> did she? She did. She she had been turning Disney down for years. Like a lot oh, of man. people a lot of people wanted to make the old possum's book of you Practical know Cats what I the thought movie. Watching this last night was I'd actually like the Disney version of this, maybe. Well, I'll give a little I guess I can give some cats context text when we come well, to it. But but she but finally Andrew Lee Weber said, Here's what I'm gonna do and she said, Oh, well Tom would actually dig this. I don't know, I don't think she put it that way, but He would be okay with that. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, that he, well, he just wanted to put it to song. Right. Yeah. He didn't he probably didn't tell her, and they're all going to be wearing cat tights and flailing about. <laughs> um, I have a feeling that T.S. Eliot might not like that so much. Though, apparently he was. So, there's T.S. Eliot as he appears in his poems, and then there's T.S. Eliot as he was as a man. And so, apparently he was very unassuming. He was humble. He had a good sense of humor. Like, there's one story of him putting a whoopee cushion under somebody at a big Faber and Faber like conference meeting mm-hmm. and just getting a kick out of it. So he was, I mean, he, maybe, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> he was juvenile enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he was juvenile enough and maybe he would have gotten a kick out of this. He was obviously juvenile enough to have written the poems. Right. It's not juvenile. And it's, I, mean, oh, that's, I mean, so let me explain what I mean touch by, with let me explain what, what I mean by juvenile. Like, he was in touch with enough his whimsy and delight in, poetry and the sound of words and just a sense of fun, which is not juvenile. You're right. That's not juvenile. That he wrote, I think, the greatest, outside of A.A. Milne's poetry, the greatest book of children's poems, Mm -hmm. which is unfortunately tainted now (laughs) because of these songs. I mean, I... All my friends know that when you have a child, I will make sure that you have a copy of Old Possum's Book of Practical Cats. Mm-hmm. True story. Now you because, can just get it on the Blu-ray of this yeah, movie, though. Yeah, I could just do that. Uh, <laughs> 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 um, <laughs> so anyways. Brennan, let's not joke about giving someone a cat's Blu-ray. Let's not. That's, that's not an funny. awful thing to joke yeah. about, Nathan. <laughs> so what I love about the story behind Old Possum's Book of Practical Cats is that he had godchildren. Mm-hmm. Who he, he never had children himself, but he would write them letters, and in these letters, he would include a poem that he had written about a cat. 
because they liked these poems. And he would call himself Old Possum and include these in the letters. Very much like how Tolkien started The Hobbit, you know, and these father Christmas stories that he would write for his children. But what's cool about this is that you've got the greatest poet known to his generation. Like, it would be like if Martin Scorsese made a home movie for his godchildren and sent it to them. And it was, it's, it's amazing and it's very sweet. And it shows, I think it does show, so the, people see, you know, people look at the initials T.S. And, they, and then they also see the wasteland and they're like, well, T.S. Eliot's just this old, prideful, haughty, pretentious, pretentious snob. And like, no, actually, the one thing that makes me realize that when his friends and his wife, um, Valerie, say that actually he was a fairly humble man, unassuming, the, the one, the, I think the exhibit A is Old Possum's Book of Practical Cats. You don't, well... I mean, you do have A.A. Milne, but mm-hmm. <laughs> that's a different story, right? And so anyways, that's, and it's a very simple story behind it. And I love it. That, that's all it was. It was him writing these. And so eventually they were collected because here you have T.S. Eliot, Nobel Prize winning poet, head publisher of Faber and Faber, who had written these poems to his nephews and nieces and somebody collected them and like, yeah, of course we're going to publish these, right? And so, yeah, they did. And they were successful. Successful enough that eventually... Andrew Lloyd Webber got his webbed fingers on him. I think claws is what you're looking for. (laughs) Claws are a little more potent. I'm going to ditch the cat metaphor and stick with webbed fingers here. (laughs) (laughs) I think Brandon's got a a point. Yeah. Millions of people loving the most successful stage musical of the 20th century were idiots. Maybe. I'm defending it. Maybe. (laughs) They could have been, Nathan. (laughs) If you read these poems to your children, you realize these are fun poems. Yeah, and you're like, I'm wasting my time. I could just turn on this amazing soundtrack. Rebel and then Wilson. You listen did. to the song. This was actually so little baggage here. Mm-hmm. This was my first time to ever hear the songs outside of like people humming a tune here and there, right? From these, and I don't think they improved the poems for me. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I would hope. Did they? Not? <laughs> no. That's what I would like. One of my favorite love poems is Harlem Night Music, Mm -hmm. Harlem Night Song by Langston Hughes. There are some wonderful versions of like jazz artists getting their hands on that and making really beautiful song versions of it. And I like those, right? Because in that case, it's a cool, it's like an interpretation of it for me. I did not like these interpretations. I don't think Andrew Lloyd Webber got it. He didn't think <laughs> the most ham-fisted composer of the 20th century. <laughs> I don't know if he got it, Nathan. <laughs> you guys brought this upon yourselves. I just want to point out to our listeners, I threw out some ideas for what we could do for our 200th, and you guys both said you wanted two cats. So I kind of think there was like a a feeling of... Um, a feline inevitability to this (laughs) it is it was clearly based on the way that you presented the options it was clearly what you wanted oh no that's (laughs) not true it is 100 percent. i didn't say we could do the stupid thing or this or we could do cats that's not what i did was it uh you proposed this by dressing as a cat (laughs) 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 mccaffrey hey guys let me give you an idea i made you guys disappear and appear on my barge (laughs) yeah as one does as one does. <laughs> as one does. All right. Uh, should we talk about cats now? I guess we should. How long is this episode? Uh, I don't know. This is 
We're whiplash, right? whisker latch. What do you want to? What's, what's like a cat pun for whiplash? <sighs> yeah, people are getting context and then they're getting this. <laughs> <laughs> Brendan or uh, Jake, what baggage did you bring to the the hit music <laughs> adaptation? Can't believe we're doing this. of <laughs> the hit adaptation of Andrew Lloyd Webber's famous successful musical Cats. Never seen uh, or listened to Cats. Big Weberhead, like Evita, Jesus Christ Superstar, Joseph no. and the Amazing Technicolor, Dreamcoat. No, I, th- I think I've seen Phantom of the Opera. Phantom of the Opera. Why didn't I? That's, that's like the one everybody's seen. I think that's maybe the, that's the only Andrew Lloyd Webber thing I think he can recall having seen. Brandon, same question. I have never seen an Andrew Lloyd Webber musical. I think I've probably said before on the bookending that I'm not a big musical fan. Mm. Part of the reason is if we didn't grow up with musicals. Part of the other reason is I have tried to watch musicals after <laughs> not having grown up with them and have not come to like them. But I think a lot of my problem is that I associate musicals with Broadway, mm-hmm. musicals like this. This didn't win me over. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, But yeah, and then I also have the fact that my dad had such a strong hatred for it as a boy. For cats or for music? cats, yeah. yeah, and so that had just tainted it even more for me, and so I just, and then when I actually got a chance to go to Broadway, what the people I was with, the, the thing they took me to see was like the Broadway Titanic, mm-hmm. which was pretty bad too. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, let me give a tiny bit of context for the musical Cats. This thing came out in 1982. It has had a worldwide gross of 3.5 billion dollars. Ran for 21 years in London, 18 years, 7,485 performances on Broadway, the longest running musical in both theater districts. It's been revived in the West End twice on Broadway once. This thing is one of the most successful things of the 20th century. Like, it is a huge deal. Isn't it one of those things, though, that, like, once it kind of got legs and sort of got momentum it was like now your grandma's gonna go see it when she's in new york because that's that's the thing like that's the long-running thing it's the thing like we gotta see what this thing's about i mean i think that that's true and that's one explanation and as i i i read up on this and as one a critic astutely said i don't know anyone that's ride or die for cats like who's ride or die for like i don't know anyone that likes cats even or like Anecdotally, I have no concept for why why this thing was so successful. But I but I think there must be something to it. You know, like you don't get that much. Yeah, you can make a splash for a year and just kind of the snake eats it to its tail and you become successful. You know, you ride on the wave of your success. Yeah, but you even think about something like Titanic. It doesn't have nearly the cultural clout that it did twenty years ago. Now, yeah, when it came out, cats. Well, apparently, cats doesn't either because nobody like this adaptation of it right but it's also you and could people so i mean people like if they love a thing they'll like you and stand by a bad adaptation of it and find merit in the bad ad- adaptation <laughs> and if you watch what i found myself thinking so i've not seen like a theatrical performance i've not seen a broadway performance what i thought as i watched it was well i can see why somebody thought this would work on stage and why it would work on stage but then I thought these performances are actually 
really great. About as good as you could ask. They're as good a performance as you could possibly ask, with the exception of Rebel Wilson and maybe James Corden. Like Idris Elba, Judy Dench. Even just the, the uh, Mr. Mustafalis and McKellen. the main chick and, yeah, do and, a nice and, job. And the three mains that you've never heard of, right? Like they were all actually really great at what they were doing and they threw themselves in and they were really great performances of what amounted to a missed story and bad music and <laughs> a terrible production. And so I thought, I thought what actually I was puzzled by is, okay, this is supposed to be, you know, this super popular musical. Mm-hmm. And the only thing to really object to if you love this musical is CGI Fur and Rebel Wilson because everything else is about as everything else was about as good as you could want it to be. I mean, Jennifer Hudson threw herself into giving an emotional, snot, teary. She was going for perform- the Oscar. She was going for the Oscar. I mean, she, it no was sarcasm clear. intended. She she wanted that. She wanted yeah. that Oscar, Memory. and she went all all in. And they all went all in on it. They all were believers. And I, whenever I see something that comes out like this. And I see the actors throw themselves in mm-hmm. all in on something so disastrous, s- stupid, and inane. I get, I only gain respect for that the actors. Like someone I, like McKellen, who actually makes his theater cat Gus the theater cat. Like actually, I think maybe brought like one tear to my some eye. emotion. Yeah, like like that's yeah. impressive. I came away respecting Judy Dench, Ian McKellen, Idris Elba, and, and some of the other actors. See, I don't really quite know their names. Jennifer Hudson was memory, the memory. Yeah, yeah. and Jennifer Hudson. I, I came away really respecting them for going all in on such bad material. But then I couldn't think, I couldn't quite understand why you would love Cats, the theatrical, perf- you know, the Broadway show, mm-hmm. and not enjoy this thing. And so- uh, Well, I, I I'll, 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 sorry, I'll let you finish. I, I, I you actually, di- I, I disagree with, I think actually, but okay. Um, well, maybe you've. I mean, I'd like to hear you explain it because <laughs> I could not figure it out. <laughs> well, if I may, I grew up with the album for whatever reason. I like Andrew Lloyd Webber. He is so corny and so pandering, and so there's there's not a criticism you can make of him that's not true. But at the same time, you know, you watch Phantom of the Opera, and you're gonna have that stupid thing stuck in your head. Like he's. Yeah. He's, he's like got, he's got catchy stuff. Right? Yeah, he's There's catchy. A reason he was successful, right? And so, Cats A, I think, actually has a it's a soundtrack that hasn't really aged very well. It feels really eighties and synthy. And, well, that now's mm-hmm. the right time for it. Well, a lot of the version and and the the versions that they did in this movie were pretty tasteless across the board. I think like the album actually really? sounds better. I think it, it the album actually has some of that eighties synth stuff, like what what's come back. But I thought there was a lot of 80s synth in that, especially in the opening. Well, yeah, the opening's cool. Uh, the versions, obviously, Rebel Wilson whiffed it, Corden whiffed it. Oh, what was the one? There's, there's a couple big numbers that just weren't as cool in this. Um, what is the guy? He in the movie, he goes into a diner. It's not Mr. Mistopheles. Oh, it's Mr. Uh, Rumpel. Rum Tum Tugger. Yeah, Rum Tum Tugger. Rum Tum Tugger. They try and do a thing. They try and kind of yeah. make it soulful and. It's not what's in the musical, and they're trying to do something, and it's just weird. And that's like a showstopper from the musical. So that kind of felt like, well, guys, you didn't nail the showstopper. And I also don't think that they actually nailed memory. I didn't. Okay. 
Yeah. Which is an easy, I would think an easy song to get right. It is the showstopper. It is the ballad. It is Anne Hathaway and Les Mis. They super emotional with it. Yeah, they went too far in that direction. What's moving about a song like that when it's well-directed, whether it's Broadway or a movie, is that the character is being courageous in spite of the lot that's been thrown them. The way that this director ham-fistedly had her play it was just all out crying and self-pity through both renditions of the song. Yeah. And that's the wrong way to play that song, actually. It's it's actually less moving. So I think that they actually, uh, it was a swing, and a, swing and a miss on memory. And then the stupid, so when you bring a score to Hollywood that's already been written, you can't, you're not eligible for Oscars, which means you always have to write a new song. So any musical is going to, ha- like if you, if you watch a musical that's been adapted from the stage, usually the worst song in the movie will be the song that was never intended for the musical, but they just wrote it for awards consideration. This one has that, and it's that ghost song. I think Taylor Swift actually co-wrote it. It's the song that the heroine sings right after memory a couple times, and that song's kind of a drag. And then Macavity is one of the big numbers in the musical. And Taylor Swift, I guess, is fine, but they just let her do her Taylor Swift thing. In the musical, it's a duet, and it's really dynamic, and there's a lot of movement and dance. And I expected Taylor Swift to be able to do that kind of thing easily because that's what she does. But they actually kind of simplified it, I think, because you can't have a second person sharing stage with Taylor, stage Swift. With Taylor Swift. So I would argue most of the big numbers, or, or maybe not most, but a lot of them. Well, and then James Corden sucks and Rebel Wilson sucks, and those are both pretty big uh, numbers. So what they got right was Old Deuteronomy. Um, I'm sorry, folks. I guess I actually do know Cats pretty well. Sorry. They, Judy Dench was fine. Idris Elba was fine, although he didn't really have, but but all that, laying all that to the side, what I want to make space for is that the musical actually does work and the movie does not adapt the musical well. I think the individual moments are fine, but what the movie tries to do is give it this plot there's like this new cat that comes into town and she's got to learn the ways of the jellicle and everybody's got competing to see who's going to go to the havasite so that's that's not not really i mean we there there is there is a havasite lair and there is the put upon cat taken from a poem that t.s Eliot actually chose to leave out of the collection but did write grizabella the glamour cat and so she shows up about halfway through everybody spits on her and then she shows, shows up you know at the right time to sing memory and then at the end, she gets to go to cat heaven. And I think McCavity does kidnap old Deuteronomy and then Mr. Mistopheles brings him back. But the point of the musical is the individual songs, the dance, the like it's it is a piece of theater. Adapting it would be like adapting Cirque du Soleil or something like that. Okay. Like it is just a review where people come out and they sing about their cat traits. There's lights and there's the other thing to know about the musical and I have seen a filmed version of the musical. I've not attended a Broadway performance, but the cats come out and they interact with the audience. Like they actually sit in the theater and they kind of, you know, crawl up on people. And <laughs> it's a really, for the people that like it, for the people who have seen it 20 times, it's a really dynamic, fun night of the theater. And it's kind of straddles that line of just being, I mean, I'm not approving of this, but I think there's a reason it works. It's just, scandalous and sexy enough for you know it's got a little something for daddy but it's also clean enough that you can bring the kids again not defending this 
not approving of it. I, just, I what I want to do here is just make space for why this thing works. Yeah. And so they give it to this guy who did the King's speech and who did Lay Miz, both of which are really ham fisted movies. I like the King's. I like both of those. The movies, King's speech actually. is good. But I've not seen Lay Miz. But, but they're like the they're King's very speech. literal. He's very literal. Like here's the story, and I'm not going to try and gussy it up or be whimsical about it at all i'm just gonna and so as whimsical as this movie kind of feels because the material is inherently whimsical or as much as the movie feels like failed whimsy this guy doesn't know how to do whimsy he's actually trying to make you invest in a plot about a new cat that shows up has to be shown the ropes about this contest about mccavity kidnapping people there's like mccavity has ray winstone as like his evil henchman that they have to defeat that's all that stuff is them trying to give some semblance of structure structure to this thing. And I am sympathetic to them wanting to do that, but the property didn't naturally have that structure. The property was inherently a night at the theater. It's actually unadaptable. I think like Hmm. it it is just something. Not something that you could give to a Boslerman or a guy, Richie, who's going to. Well, the fascinating missed opportunity is that Spielberg really wanted to do it in the late 80s, early 90s. Spielberg huh. actually owned the rights, wanted to do it as, a, as an animated movie. And you can find storyboards and stuff that they had drawn. But what happened was Spielberg could just never make it work with animation. He did An American Tale, Tale Five Will Goes West, which wasn't successful. They did We're Back, A Dinosaur Story, which was terrible and also not successful. They did a couple other things. You guys remember those bad animated Spielberg movies from that era. Prince of Egypt? Uh, not Prince of Egypt. That's when he that's formed. Later. That's later. But so. American or, Tale is great. Yeah. It I, doesn't I, matter what people thought at the time. It's Don Bluth, right? No, and, it, and it's successful. And that's Don Bluth, Spielberg producing. But American Table, Five Will Goes West came out later in the era I'm talking about. And that movie oh. I like, but or I, like I liked as too. a kid. Yep. But it didn't make money. Okay. And people, so Spielberg tried to break into animation. It seemed like an easy fit for him. He could never quite knock it out of the park and just compete with Disney like he wanted to. And Cats was part of that production. Mm. And I think this movie, as a Disney kind of Fantasia, no pun intended, might work just fine. If you could remove some of the literalism from it, if you could just, if you could find a way to make a review about a bunch of cats singing about their personality traits that lives and dies on whether you like the music and whether you like the spectacle work it'd be like those disney shorts yeah exactly whole series of these little shorts that are supposed to go together but there's no rhyme or reason as to how they fit together right i think there might be a way to make that work in cinema it's also a pretty tall ask and this movie's been in development hell since the 80s it's a hugely successful property they've been trying to figure out how to crack it and, and they didn't and they didn't yeah. I, I i just think it's something that you don't have to approve of it or like it but the only space i'm trying to make i guess is there's a reason it worked in the theater and there's a reason they did not successfully, I don't think, translate that. I mean, I'll, I'll buy that. I haven't seen it in right. the theater. All I can judge yeah, is My this assumption thing. was basically that we are seeing a, well, and from the style of it, I, it felt to me like we were just getting a pretty faithful adaptation of the stage. Yeah. It was, it's weird how you can do a faithful adaptation of something that's also not faithful like something that's faithful in the letter without being faithful in the spirit right you know like this basically hits the beats yeah but what was actually intriguing about it as an 
as a property, as something that people enjoyed, doesn't really make it. I mean, another thing to say, if people are interested in this, I'm drawing a little bit on an, a video essay by a lady named Lindsay Ellis that I like. She's a feminist socialist. She does. She, I wouldn't recommend everything that she does, but she did an essay on why cats doesn't work, which I watched. It's like an hour. You can find it on YouTube as a movie. What's that? Yeah, like as a as a video, and I think it's pretty. No, he means the movie, not the. Yeah, yeah, no. She she did. She she, she talked about. A, she get she she dives in at length as to why people like this because if you're not part of the cats in crowd, it is baffling that this was ever something that was successful. And then she talks and and that it had the level like Phantom of the Opera makes you don't have to like it, but it makes sense. It's a compelling gothic story and yeah, pop music and a yeah, sexy and guy and a sexy a, gal and you can watch a, the movie and right get it. But but cats is just like what is this so she talks at length about what it is what it is is andrew lloyd weber is just a weirdo that loves his mom read him t.s Eliot, and he loves cats like not the musical but he loves actual cats and he just wanted to make a musical and it just i don't think he knew what he was doing i mean i it just maybe he did because he's a very successful guy in other respects but it's just one of those weird flukes it just took off and people love it and then they've been trying to crack the film ever since and they got this guy who's just a director who had some success with Les Mis, but he is just a thudding literalist. It's not what you want for this. This is not what you want. You have to have somebody who can actually successfully handle whimsy. And this movie is just a strikeout on the whimsy score. Every time they try with the cockroaches, like the more whimsical it gets, the more uncomfortable. More cringe. The more cringe it is. Yeah. And so you could imagine maybe, actually, Boz Lerman's a good thought experiment like maybe he could actually find a style yeah, that would suit this guy, material he was the guy that early on to me the first thought that i had in my head and trying to crack what was going on was a very flat non-creative person trying to do Boslerman. right is what it felt like it, it's like dad joke the movie it's like your, your dad's doing five minutes of comedy or something like that like, yeah it's like you're not a comedian dude it, like we love you but yeah and and sometimes you can be accidentally funny right but don't try to be funny funny please. right and that that that's kind of what it felt like I, I thought and as it went on and these things that were supposed to feel felt like they're supposed to feel big and exotic and whimsical and colorful really fell flat right i thought why why did we not just get Boz Lerman or Guy Ritchie or somebody who's actually colorful and whimsical enough to do something interesting visually even with right. this stuff. Well, and you have two choices. You can either lean in and try and make some of this stuff emotional, which is what they do and they fall flat on. Like old dude Deuteronomy gets kidnapped. In, in the musical, it's like McCavity comes out, he does a little dance, old dude Deuteronomy disappears. We're not supposed to invest emotionally in that. Everybody's like, where's old Deuteronomy? And then Mr. Mistopheles comes out, does a big dance number, and makes old Deuteronomy appear. In the movie, we actually spend time and it's like it's yeah, like Mr. Mistopheles has to at, were asking me to invest in <laughs> it's ridiculous. in terms of the plot, like without establishing any real plot. Mm-hmm. Like it really was just silly. And Brandon, you're obviously not talking because you love this movie. Oh, I adored it. Yeah. You're offended that I think I've said everything I have to say. Nathan. <laughs> I think that's, that's why I'm not talking. <laughs> you couldn't see this music where like you would never listen to this album just no. as like a, I'm going to listen to old possums book of practical cats, the album. Yeah. Sorry, Nathan. No, <laughs> it's not my kind of music. <laughs> I think some of the 
this movie doesn't do it any favors, but like McCavity, McCav, that's a cool like yeah. way to adapt that song. <laughs> I just wouldn't listen to it. <laughs> I mean, I have to imagine stupid Taylor Swift slinking around yeah. and bad cat fur. Yeah, this movie is weird. The other thing that this video essay points out is that they, at a certain point, it seems like reading between the lines, lost faith in this movie. Like they must have done some te- well. It's, it's when that first trailer came out and the internet just went nuts. And roasting cut, this and thing. they cut budget to cut losses on their finishing right and so That's there's, there's I, special I, effects I, that I just that aren't finished like judy dench's hands you see her yes, wedding ring and stuff i know yeah i kept thinking that too it's just like they quit on this movie right they like, just gave up judy dench's hands are just judy dench's hands right like <laughs> it's just like yeah it was just weird it is a weird and off-putting and and when they had they were doing all these promos <clears throat> with like all of the talk about the digital fur technology or whatever they called it. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the other thing. Uh, that's the other thing that is inherently a bad decision about this movie. Like if we could actually just connect with these actors a little bit and we didn't have this digital thing standing between us, this uncanny Valley of it all. Yeah. I think this movie would have some kind of a chance. Like, like even the scenes where you're watching someone dance you can't like you went on the stage or even in a good movie be like, Oh, I that's, that's really talented tap dancing. I'm enjoying that. Cause you just, you don't connect to it as a fellow human being. Yeah. Well, and you can't like so much of even the dance numbers are CGI would up, mm-hmm. not just the fur, but the, like the way that they handle the way the body works and the flips and things just like it really lives in uncanny valley yeah and there's things like like we all know taylor swift is a talented physical performer but you don't that doesn't come through the lady that plays the the main cat whatever her name is the the audience surrogate surrogate cat she's a ballet and you can kind of see that in the way that she moves but she's a ballet ballet number but she doesn't really you don't ever, ever admire her or get to connect to her as like a human woman doing good ballet and again i'm not sure that that would even work well, i you'd wish, want that i found myself wishing that it had just gone full disney animation and yeah one or the other i mean i think full disney animation would be great or maybe there's a way to make this work as a 1950s musical where everybody's dressed in cat costumes you know like a wizard of right. oz kind yeah. of thing but i think the best way is for you to take lsd sit down and read this book of poems to your kids and pretend this musical never happened. <laughs> That's right. my solution. So I threatened to do this in our Slack. I want to try and draw a line before we we're done, which yeah. will, will be done in a minute. I want to try and draw a line from T.S. Eliot and the Wasteland to us reviewing this, 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 this is your this, time to shine. The stupid it, movie. No, you, you guys have to help me, though, because I don't know if I can pull it off. Okay. So let's try this, though. Modernism brings postmodernism, brings absurdity, brings crass commercialism, brings, brings cats. Yep. There you go. There you go. T.S. <laughs> Eliot brought this on us. <laughs> it's Are appropriate there any... that this thing... Absurdity in crass commercialism. Right. Yeah, we've seen that. Actually, we've been able to see that line mm-hmm. this year in the bookening. Right. We've been talking a lot about it. It's the perfect movie for us. Yeah, and so, because we just got finished with Beckett, mm. and here we have... Cats. Cats. Cats mm. is in, is next in line from Beckett. Yeah. Right. Well, and I just think moder- modernism is inherently self-aware. I mean, I was thinking about this today. When Michelangelo was painting, he was painting... He was like... He was not in conversation with himself as an artist. He was in conversation with his patrons, with the Pope, with... 
God, you might say. T.S. Eliot, like he is in conversation with himself as a poet when he's writing The Wasteland. He's not able to do anything that is not also commentary. Right. Right. Which is fascinating because T.S. Eliot said like the poet can't be consciously bringing himself and yet everything about modernism brings Yes, it's self bear. It's inherently narcissistic. That's the counter argument to Eliot. Yeah. And all of new criticism. Um, which they're wrong. That's just that's just it. He was foundationally important, but he was just wrong. Right. So And so all those examples we mentioned earlier, you know, Picasso is he's aware of what he's doing. He's he's being an artist, you know, he's he's just simply self aware. Frank Lloyd Wright He's commenting when he when he goes in these you know, abstract directions, cubism, whatever. Mm-hmm. He's commenting on on what art was before what and what he is him bringing and, to, and what how he's his perspective. It's right, you know, and you could say that about the impressionists. You could say that about Frank Lloyd Wright in with our architecture. You know, like this is what a building looks like, and then this is what a Frank Lloyd Wright. This is Frank Lloyd Wright in conversation with all the architects that came before yeah. and asserting what they should have been doing or what they should do now, where we should be going. This is modernism. It is inherently neurotic and self-aware, and you don't get the culture of neurotic self-analysis that forces us and YouTube and everybody to watch something like Cats and make it into a midnight cult classic that we all just live to make fun of without Elliot paving the way. Yeah. He made the wasteland. He made the wasteland. And we littered it. We are the hollow men. We are the hollow men. Yep. We are the straw men, the stuffed men. All right. I'm glad. I'm glad that that was an easy connection to make. I was afraid it would be difficult. No, it was perfect. Great. In your face, T.S. Eliot. Yeah. Nathan, Nathan, I think this should be a book. <laughs> should be an essay. How from... T.S. Eliot created the wasteland. Yep. <laughs> so it sounds like a pretty simple book. <laughs> you and Nathan. He wrote a poem. He, he wrote a poem. <laughs> <laughs> the end. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, that's good. That's so good of an ending that I don't think we'll do donor shout outs today, but. You know that we love you. you we got you know us that we here. love you. Thank you for Thank you. 200 episodes, guys. Congratulations. Yeah. Yeah. Here's to 200 more at the very least. Yep. And at the very least. At the very least. Maybe 10 years of the bookening. We got to do at least 10 years, I think. Yeah. Arguably, we should do at least 12 so that we can go through Austin's Uber twice. I like that. Yep. And then arguably, we should do more than that because it'd be fun. Yeah. But. I like doing this podcast. I love you guys. And this was kind of a silly way to. I had fun. Celebrate it, but it was fun. It was fun. Uh, would you guys recommend that people watch Cats? No. No. <laughs> Even just for, for humor? No. Not really. No, it's not. It's not like funny, bad, actually. No. There's a couple. It's Yeah. Actually, what I was telling Jake before you got here today was that this is, if this movie were popular, it would make me angry. Mm-hmm. But the fact that it, it exists is just more of the, I'm just kind of indifferent to it. It's yeah. just like, yeah, whatever. Like, that's my reaction in the end. Mm-hmm. Just complete indifference. I don't think it affects T.S. Eliot's reputation at all or his legacy. <laughs> <laughs> so. I'm sure most people wouldn't even make the connection that <laughs> yeah. T.S. Eliot has anything to do with it. Yeah. Although it was fun to look in the kit credits and see T.S. Eliot's name flash. Yeah. flash up. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Uh, by the way, memory is not a lyric that T.S. Eliot no. wrote. That's pretty important and to you say. You can tell that too. Um, no. It's it's based on something that like from his journals or something. I don't know. Yeah. Something that the widow gave Lloyd Webber, I think. But Grisabelle the, the Glamour Cat is and was not published but was used for the movie. 
memory is basically just a lyric that they came up with that they vaguely say is based on something. I guess it's something that's published, right? It's a, there's a poem. I don't know. Memory. Yeah. Well, mixing. There's a poem. There's this T.S. Eliot poem that has the line memory in it. Memory? Is that ah. the word memory? I think it's like memory, memory, the street lamps. It's, it's got, it's got some of the same imagery. Well, from all the that song. jail for proof rock has some of that imagery in it. Yeah, yeah. But I don't think that's what it is. It's a mystery, folks. What's the line? Memory? Memory all alone in the moonlight. All right, folks, we're going to solve one mystery for you, and then we'll call it a two, an anniversary, a cat's anniversary. Barbara Streisand sings it. A cat's catastrophe. A cat's catastrophe. Huh, it turns out searching the word memory in Google does not bring it up. Memory song. Memory, cat's song. The Rhapsody on a Windy Night. That's what it is. Yes. <laughs> One of his lesser known poems. So YouTube has, <laughs> this is hilarious. YouTube has a chart and on one side it's phrases T.S. Eliot wrote in Rhapsody Wikipedia. on a Windy Night. Yeah, Wikipedia, sorry, not YouTube. Uh, uh, on the left it says phrases T.S. Eliot wrote in Rhapsody on a Windy Night and then on the right, adaptation by Trevor, Trevor Nunn for Cats. And so T.S. Eliot wrote 12 o'clock. Trevor Nunn wrote Midnight. Midnight. <laughs> <laughs> Every street lamp that I pass beats like a fatalistic drum. That's Eliot. Every street lamp seems to beat a fatalistic warning. That would be actually. Let's play that. Let's play this game. Okay. Elliot's or Elliot's or Elliot or none. Oh no! Twelve o'clock, midnight. Twelve o'clock is Elliot. Well, we know. Yeah. Yep. The moon has lost her memory. Versus has the moon lost her memory? Elliot is the assertion. Correct. Yes. She is smiling alone. Versus she is alone. She is alone. Is Elliot? Oh, yeah. That's Elliot. Uh, we already said this one, but every street lamp that I pass beats like a fatalistic drum, or every street light seems to beat a fatalistic warning. The fatalistic drum is Elliot? Yep. Someone mutters and a street lamp gutters versus the street lamp sputtered, the street lamp muttered. Ooh. Someone is uh, Elliot. False. The street oh. lamp sputtered, the street lamp muttered. The street lamp sputtered, the street lamp muttered, it is Elliot. Yeah. None is the better poet than Elliot. Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> we approved it. <laughs> With all the old nocturnal smells versus the cold, or no, I'm sorry, the stale cold smell of morning. With all the cold nocturnal smells is Elliot. Correct. Memory versus all alone with the memory. Memory. Memory is Elliot. Correct. It's got an exclamation point. And finally, Sleep, comma, prepare for life versus look, uh, comma, a new day has begun. Well, that last one's not Elliot. So it's <laughs> sleep, prepare for life. Sleep, prepare for life is Elliot, yeah. You uh, can tell the difference. You can. <laughs> uh, number of hit musicals written by T.S. Elliot, zero. <laughs> Billions of dollars in revenue generated by T.S. Elliot, zero. Huh, you think that's true? <laughs> Actually, that, well, yeah, I'm going to go with probably that is true. Yeah, that's probably true. He probably hasn't generated a billion dollars in revenue. Surely not. <laughs> <laughs> All right, folks, thanks for listening. The Bookening, as always, is produced by me, executive produced by Jake, performed by the three of us. Thanks to Brandon for his wonderful T.S. Eliot commentary. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed our discussion of cats. I hope you felt like the two things belonged in the same episode. I'm not sure. <laughs> Together. Might be an oil and water episode. <laughs> you know what? We've done 
200 of these things, I think we're entitled to one or two oil and waters. Um, I do think it was probably fun, though. I think it was fun, and I hope you guys enjoyed all our discussions about concerts and music yeah. that we had at the beginning. Shine, let them wonder what you got. Let them wish Until that they were not. On the well, other side, looking in, shine. Let them shine before all men. Let them see your works, and then let them glorify the Lord. Down, 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 down. Patreon.com forward slash the booking. Bye.